As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. I have so much to share with you here in this final, final episode of season three. And before we jump in, let me just say that if you've just discovered the podcast and haven't listened to the earlier episodes in the season, I highly suggest you go back and listen to them first, as each episode in this season builds on the one before. Over the past 10 episodes, we have been on quite the journey through one branch of my own family tree to explore what happens when a group of people leave the only land they've ever known for the promise of salvation and eternal life in heaven. To wrap things up, I have a special interview to share with you today. But first, let me just say that if this season has been inspiring you to go deeper on your own journey with your ancestors and the spirits of the land, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earth Tenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other Earth Tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. Now, before we get to the interview, I have a few more thoughts I'd like to share. Because almost as soon as I'd finished recording last week's episode that I had decided was the final episode of season three, I started thinking of all the things I forgot to say. More themes I wanted to explore and discuss, and I started mentally working on another episode in my mind. But after a few days, I decided that I could go on and on like that forever. There's always another thought and another connection. And perhaps I'll pop on here with updates to the story in the future as more unfolds. But for now, I'm going to let it rest. Honestly, I need to let it rest. I realized this week that if there's a feeling or a sense that I have about the year ahead for me, it's about integration. Although I've integrated and processed much that has transpired since my first encounter with the Mormon ancestors in the summer of 2019, I need some time now to stop thinking and researching and just let it land in my life. Let the energy settle. Let the lessons still unlearned come to light or the missing puzzle pieces be found. I think that's why so many of the messages I'm hearing about where to place my focus this year have to do with settling deeply into the earth where I live. Not only will it help to ground all of this energy from so many other timelines into this reality, but the physical act of putting my hands into the soil and my bare feet on the earth will help to plant what I have found and learned in the ethers into my life and the land here today. And so today's episode is a bit of a postscript to the season story, an effort to pull just a few of the repeating threads together here at the end. I'm sharing with you today my discussion with beekeeper Ariella Daly. Ariella is devoted to natural, bee-centric bee tending and has spent the past decade studying under the path of pollen, a shamanic honeybee tradition that's based in the British Isles. Her studies have led her on a journey to explore the cultural and historical practices, myths, and beliefs around bees and beekeeping. But bees aren't the only ancient symbol she's learned about. Where you find the bee, you often also find the serpent, which is why I thought our discussion would be the perfect way to end this season. From my visions of the snakes beneath Salt Lake City to the Mormon symbol of the honeybee and the hive... I've tripped across the bee and the serpent again and again in my research. 
And much like Goddess Medusa represented the healing energy of the earth until she lost her head in the myths, silencing her wisdom, bees and serpents were always symbolic of the sacred feminine, the abundance of the earth, and the cycles of life, death, and rebirth. Throughout this exploration of this one piece of my ancestral lineage, I've asked myself again and again, if heaven, or rather the afterlife, is simply of our own making, then what do I want mine to be? If I don't subscribe to the teachings of any particular religion, then where exactly do I want to take my consciousness when my physical body returns to the earth? And somewhere in that pondering, I realize that perhaps that's the point of religion. I mean, the specifics from one religion to the next may vary widely in specifying how you pray, or what you eat, or who you believe your savior to be. But the important tenets of morality are largely the same. Don't harm others. Do not cheat or lie. Treat others as you wish to be treated. So, the big important difference between religions is, what happens when you die? Who greets you to escort you to the afterlife? Where do you go to enjoy the rewards of a life well-lived? Because whichever belief you subscribe to is the one you're going to get. And I wonder, after meeting Dan, my past life in the Mormon church, if part of my desire for this life was to explore some of the many options available outside of the one he was born into. The one he was told was the one and only truth the one he was reluctant to hand his soul over to after his death, based on what he saw and experienced in his life. And so this conversation with Ariella helped to bring some of these pieces together for me. For thousands of years, bees were linked with the mystery of life, death, and the afterlife. And I love the idea of being met by a swarm of bees at the end of this life who will escort my soul back through the womb of the earth into that great mystery where I'll be reunited with my ancestors of all beliefs and faiths, where we return to and remember that we are one with all that is, only to be reborn again somewhere else in this vast universe. Perhaps instead of Archangel Michael or Jesus, I'll now call on the bees to open the portal between worlds to help the lost souls that I encounter in the future. After all, we only know and trust these religious figures after belonging to a religion, which can also be tangled up with so many other unpleasant emotions and experiences from our lives. Instead, the bees are pure and joyful and belong to the earth. I can't think of a better escort out of the physical plane. And so with that, I will leave you now with this final discussion for season three with beekeeper Ariella Daly. Okay, well, I'm so excited to have Ariella here um, to chat today. Uh, I, well, I will let you explain. You are a beekeeper, but so much more than that. And if you can give us a little bit of a background of what your um, kind of interests and uh, expertise is around bees and bee shamanism. Thank you so much for having me on, Amy. Yeah, so there are many different threads that brought me into the work I do now, but in a nutshell, I focus on something called bee-centric beekeeping or natural beekeeping, which means that I am looking to how the bees live in the wild, how the bees have evolved over time, and what we can learn from feral and wild colonies and apply to our current beekeeping, um, trying to do un undo some of the damage that commercial and industrial mechanized beekeeping has done. So that's one intact whole thing I do, but that's also deeply informed by over a decade of study and practice in a folk tradition that's taught to the public primarily in Britain. And it's easily called European bee shamanism, or we could use a more appropriate term, animism, um, working with the idea that the, the, everything is imbued with sentience and animate awareness, everything from 
the spirit of your podcast, to the spirit of the bee, to the spirit of your home, to the spirit of a tree. And this folk tradition is um, based in England at this time. It has roots in Celtic Britain, Lithuania, where my teacher's teacher came from, one of, one of them. And then it goes all the way back to ancient Greece, where there's considered to be a golden age of, of what are called the bee priestesses, bee women, known as the Melissa. So this is a tradition connected to the Melissa. It's very uh, womb and women oriented. It's typically women that teach men and women. And it puts its uh, central focus, if we're talking again about animism, learning from nature, on both the bee and the snake. And so these two motifs, symbols, and animate spirits inform the work that we do. So my work is influenced by this. It's influenced by actual beekeeping, understanding the biology of the bees. And then I utilize that to both work with beekeeping and also really work with um, empowerment for people, helping them connect back to their own bodies, to their relationship to the earth, nature connection, dreams, so forth and so on. Yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And, and really, you know, I've realized in this exploration of my own family and my lineage and really going back to some of these ancient times, like how many times the bee and the serpent in some way or another, in some ways, um, you know, in a, um, you know, a very beautiful, and I guess you could say positive type of an atmosphere. And in some cases where places, um, different, you know, organizations or uh, groups of people have taken some of these symbols and turned them upside down or turned them around. And so it's really interesting to kind of come back to this um, place of looking at the really ancient traditions around bees in so many ways. So, I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about the origins of bee shamanism or really what um, maybe some of the traditions or beliefs around that are? Sure, to the best of my ability, because, and I say that, because bee shamanism as it's taught and practiced through the sacred trust in the, in the UK, which is where I learn, it is a folk tradition. It's a earth animate tradition, and it survived by remaining an oral tradition. So there aren't really any books written about the origin. It's something that's been passed down. It's something that's still practiced in private by a number of people. And then there's a public face as well that, you know, has teachings. And I'm part of that. You could say descended from that, learning from that lineage, continuing to learn from that lineage. And I also teach um, utilizing modalities from that lineage. But I think what's most interesting to a lot of people is this idea of these bee women or these Melissa. So Melissa means bee. And if we're looking at the historical record, if we look back to ancient Greece, we find the Melissa very particularly as priestesses. So think of it as if we were speaking English, we wouldn't say it called them the Melissa, we'd just be calling them the bees. I love to reframe that way. So if if we were living in ancient times and perhaps going to go to one of the biggest festivals that existed in ancient Greece, and that festival and ritual, so a long ritual festival, was in dedication to the bee herself. And that bee was named Demeter, goddess of grain and the seasons, and also known as the bee. And that festival was also going to be a celebration of Demeter's reconnecting the return of her daughter, Persephone, who is taken from her, who went on her initiatory journey into the underworld, into the place, the land of the dead, to learn about the secrets of life after death. And this festival was going to support that experience. Well, her daughter, of course, was also named Honey-like or Bee-like. So we're going knowing that we're going to this festival of the bee and her bee-like or honey-like daughter, and that the priestesses 
who are presiding over that festival are known as the bees. So we're going to go encounter the bees. I, I love to think of it that way rather than this sort of overly mystical title, because ultimately these were humans working with a really powerful symbol, a symbol of life and death and rebirth that is the bee. And speaking about particular practitioners, these bee women, as such, as carrying this title. So Melissa means bee and is a title. You find the bee throughout ancient Greece associated specifically with goddesses, with the divine, and with messages coming to humanity from the divine. You see this idea of the bees as messengers, as they who go between. So we have to look at this again from the worldview that there is another world, that we're not alone in our physical reality, that there is a permeable afterlife or underworld or other world. One of my favorite words is the other world, borrowing from the Celtic imagination to, to be in this state of being where at all times we are shoulder to shoulder with touching this permeable world of spirit where we can have direct conversation with the spirit of the bees, where we can encounter the gods, the spirits, the consciousness, you know, so many words for it. So the bees were seen and still are by many cultures as these creatures that somehow can connect with that which comes before life, that which comes after life, and the prophetic quality of knowing, of just knowing, knowing what is. Prophecy wasn't always predictive. There was a deeper understanding of prophecy, prophecy being about truth and some of the ancient Greek mind, you could say. I'm trying to think of a specific example, but but yeah, the idea that prophecy is not just about being predictive. So the bees were known as these creatures that we could connect to to help us see the greater picture, the bigger picture. And I always ask why. So what is it about the bees themselves? I'm not going to find it in an ancient script. We're not going to know what that is. I, I actually look to the bees specifically. What do we know about honeybees? Well, we know that honeybees live in hollows, in warm, dry, dark spaces. Places like caves, places like trees. And those places are where they gather and where they bring what they've gathered from the land. So they bring the abundance of the land in spring and summer in the form of nectar from the flowers and pollen from the flowers to this warm, dry, dark, wombic place, very much like the earth mother. In the ancient Greek mind, as well as many other indigenous cultures throughout the world, the earth is mother. The earth is the original source. And we go to the earth when we die. We return to this womb and we, we are born of it and we return to it. And here the bee is coming and going from this dark interior space. And what happens within that space? Ambrosia, honey, food of the gods is produced, as well as the bees themselves, who seemingly give birth to themselves every spring in something called a swarm. So they can duplicate themselves. They can go from one organism and split apart and become us two organisms. Well, again, we can look to the ancient mind, the ancient Greek mind, and we can see that many of the pre-patriarchal, pre-Olympian goddesses, Demeter, Hera, Rhea, Artemis, were all associated with this ability to recreate themselves. So even Demeter in the famous myth of Demeter and Persephone, her daughter, her daughter is a recreation of herself, this autogenic or parthenogenic ability to remake oneself anew, this constant regeneration of the earth. There it is again, the earth regenerating itself, regenerating itself. So is it any wonder that Artemis was sometimes called the bee, that 
her one of her oldest forms, Artemis of Ephesus in Turkey. She was Artemis in the city of the bees. Ephesus was known as the city of the bees. Aphrodite was associated with bees. Hera had connection to bees. Uh, definitely, as I said, Demeter. Who, who have I left out? It, you know, all of these ancient, ancient primordial mother figures are associated with the life-giving experience of bees. Because as we all know, when bees come in the spring, the land flowers. And when the land flowers, the land will surely fruit. And the fruit will feed the people. And so we are always tied to this cyclical relationship with the bees and their abundance. Long answer for a beautiful question about where some of this comes from. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. There, there's no concrete answer or no book that's been handed down to us to say this is why and how um, the symbol and um, not just a symbol, right? Because it, it, it exists in our <laughs> physical reality as well. Like that um, was so important to so many ancient traditions in so many different parts of the world. It really yeah. um, was not isolated to just to just one part. No, you find um, it in Celtic Britain or Celtic, all of the Celtic countries too, this idea of the bee being messenger between the worlds. You know, you find it in Norse culture. It's it's all, all over the place. Yeah, which certainly this season we've been exploring obviously a lot of Norse culture mm-hmm. um, with the the Swedish connection. But it, it's really interesting to me. And and uh you know, I've kind of been looking at and trying to make this connection, you know, with the, um, the Mormon lineage being, uh, you know, their symbol is the hive, um, the bee and the hive, uh, both. And, you know, as I've done more research into the origins of, of the church and really where, um, a lot of these connections are, I, I get the sense that there was an intent to, attempt to recreate some of the old mystery schools uh, with this religion and that there was a lot of borrowing and kind of taking from a variety of different um, kind of lineages and traditions. And so I, I wonder sometimes, and there's been a few other things that I've come across where I'm like, I wonder if, you know, such a, what really became such a patriarchal religion knew so many of the matriarchal, you know, traditions that, um, they were pulling from when they created some of these um, rituals and and symbols. And so just kind of thinking, you know, or diving a little deeper into like, what does the hive tend to symbolize in some of um, these older cultures or where, where perhaps were they making some of these connections between the honeybee and the hive outside of just kind of you know, industrious, hard group work, which I think is how it's been um, condensed down to over time. But I, I sense that there was really something much deeper there, whether it was intentional or not, um, around the hive and the bee. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There there absolutely was. And that's what I was talking about is that in definitely in ancient Greece and other ancient cultures, the earth was seen as the womb. So the earth was seen as the mother and the bees came out of the mother, out of the darkness, out of that birth canal, whether that's a cave, which is often associated with the entrance into the feminine and into the feminine mysteries or out of a tree. And so out of these life-giving places come this entire swarm of bees. It's what they do in the spring. So they were heavily associated with the divine feminine as such. And um, and with the the wisdom of the earth, it's you know the, the earth in Greek lineage is known as Gaia, and yes, she's the mother, but she was also the first oracle. She was the first prophet. And actually, finally, I just found the quote I wanted to share, which is that it's from one of uh, Max Dasho's work pieces of work where she talks about the word prophetess, T I S which means female prophet. She was saying that the original sense of this word is not prediction, but guidance and inspired counsel. Guidance and inspired counsel, which I love. So the the bees were really adopted as these 
symbols of the sacred feminine, but also as guides. And we even see that in Christian mythology, where Jesus is said to cry tears that became bees. Well, actually, if we look further back, that that comes from the Egyptian story that Ra cried tears when they hit the earth, they became bees. Of course, in that in that belief system, they didn't know that the mother bee was a queen. They thought the, that central bee was a king. So they had the king bee of, of Egypt or the, 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 the lower Egypt was the land of the bee. Um, and the pharaoh was the king bee. But in, by the time we got to Greek, Greek culture, there was this real sense of this older matrilineal, possibly influenced, probably heavily influenced by Minoan Crete, where there, there was evidence, is evidence of strong matriarchal matrilineal culture strong connection to bees i mean crete was in is a place of the bee they really thrive there the, the actual honeybees really thrive there that's a great location for them so over and over again we see these associations with the abundance that is the hive and the sisterhood that is the hive you know all of these female bees of course there are male bees too but it's predominantly sister bees female bees who are related who are working together as one and that's really been adopted in the more modern era the last few centuries once that's been more deeply understood that they are female bees and they are all working as one to the point where in you know the, the more recent but what do we want to call it stories we tell ourselves mythologies worldviews we tell ourselves we looked at that and went wow well that actually works really well with the factory model so we're going to call this bee the busy bee, the worker bee, the industrial bee, the industrious bee, the industrial era, mechanized beekeeping, all of this stuff that, that really fit in with a model of thinking. So that, that has its place. It's also created a tremendous amount of damage to the actual organism that is the honeybee and how we keep bees, which is some of the work I'm seeking to un unravel, undo, and repair. But behind all of it is this absolute wonder. So let's go back once more to the idea in the Celtic imagination, in the Greek imagination, in you know, Slavic, in Germanic, that the earth is mother and therefore the earth is the womb. And out of the dark, in the spring, in the time of abundance and rebirth, comes actually two primary regenerative species. The bee that can seemingly rebirth herself as an entire being, a swarm in the spring, and, and proliferate and make honey, divine food, medicine. And the serpent, who can shed its own skin and be renewed, coming out of the dark of the earth in the spring. So both of these symbols becoming very strongly associated with the ability to renew oneself, to come into greater abundance. The bees are busy bees, but they are also mistresses of abundance. They know abundance truly in the land in relationship to it. And they are you know, heavily associated with beauty and poetry as well. In fact, to be a poet is to be honey-tongued, is it not? To have the honey-tongued, to be able to say sweet words. So there's a strong, strong associated with, association with divine speech, prophecy, divine speech, poetry, and this access to the mystery. They help us access the mystery. It's so true. And I, I think in really in looking back to over many of these religious traditions and and just traditions in general, what we see is like that is, it seems to be what we as humans are always seeking, right? <laughs> like we're always looking for the, the answer to the mystery and who holds the mystery and who can share it with us or who is guarding the mystery to be shared. And, and I think it's so beautiful how, you know, the bees in following what they're doing, just their natural patterns was really a uh, recognition of looking at you know the cycles of the earth and the cycles of the seasons and even you know the Demeter and Persephone story is so connected to the seasons and it it's really um 
following them in that way to to reap the abundance of the earth. And I just think that's so beautiful. Yes, and to work in accordance with it. Absolutely. That festival that I was talking about at the very beginning, that was the, it happened, I believe, every five years. It was the festival that took place at Eleusis, Eleusinian Mysteries. So mysterious that still to this day, nothing was ever truly written down about it. But we do know that the priestesses were the Melissa. And we do know that um, it was a festival celebrating an epiphany about life after death and the experience of death through through this understanding with with these two goddess figures, um, which I think is really interesting. I, I think that um, any creature that helps us feel like like we ha- we have an, a way between the, the this physical reality and what else lies beyond is going to become a very sacred creature. And often creatures of flight are that, or creatures that can go in deep into the earth. So we see that with bees and birds. In fact, we see that in a lot of the matriarchal cultures, the bird and the bee and the butterfly are all heavily associated with the goddess and that regenerative quality. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so interesting. That was, uh, in fact, one of the earlier episodes this, this season was about the Eleusinian mysteries as well. And and mm-hmm. one of the things that I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you have a sense for it or not, you know, because that festival um, obviously had a some type of plant medicine connection that, um, you know. Yes. Un- unknown to us. <laughs> yeah. Specifically, but there seems to be enough information to to do uh, to know that that was the case. And I'm wondering if, in your own research and and your own um, learning, if you've come across any other places where there's um, this kind of like bee serpent, you know, plant medicine or fungi type connection, because that's the other kind of symbol that continues to come up in this um, this journey that I've been on. Sure, absolutely. Uh, the the one that comes to mind the most, and of course, just based on my sort of areas of study, um, the one that comes to mind is Delphi. Do you know much about Delphi? Uh, the Oracle of? Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> yes, place. A, and the a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with that name, Delphi. Delphi itself means womb. So Delphi and the Delphic Oracle are world famous, and rightly so. It was the longest standing oracle in in the world. Uh, the Delphic Oracle was established pre in, in pre-Olympian times and lasted for over a thousand years and was quite literally, these priestesses were quite literally monumental and influential in the creation of democracy itself through their advising, because the oracle was, again, not just a prophetess in the prophetess in the sense of predicting the future, but also gave counsel through rather enigmatic poetic words. So the Delphic oracle was called the Delphic bee. So there we have the bee again, the Delphic bee. She was also a priestess of Pytho or Delphine, who in the earlier stories, before again this sort of shift into the the patriarchal takeover of Greek religion, uh, she was the first daughter. Pytho, Delphine, was the first daughter of the earth. And this first daughter of the earth took form as a serpent. So she was the snake. She was Pytho, became becoming Python. Way, way later, she became a he and she and he became a monster. But early on, it was a she. And she was the first daughter and therefore the first oracle, first prophetess. And then she taught Themis. Themis Themis. I don't know how to pronounce her name, but it's the, the first human prophetess who was the first female priestess at and god, goddess, god, goddess, however you want to say it. Um, but the first priestess, and she was very influential in the Greek pantheon as well. So she's she she had her own story. I'm not going to get into that. 
The point being, so there's this ancient connection to the snake and the bee. The priestess who sat and gave oracle was known not just as the Delphic bee, but also as the Pythia or the Pythia or the Pythoness. And a py Pythoness became ubiquitous with prophetess. At Delphi, the priestesses were known to descend into a lower chamber or the lower chamber within the temple complex. So just to descend into the dark, close to the earth, after ritually bathing in a nearby spring and drinking of the waters. And then they would chew on laurel leaves. And so you have this, already you have this quality of stepping into an altered state through the um, ethnobotanical or ethnogenic substance or taking in the laurel leaves. They would also, um, there are also theories that there might've been something in the water itself that they were, that was altering. And then they also sat in a, on a tripod over a crack in the earth and would breathe in the breath of Python, the breath of the serpent, letting that dragon's breath rise up into the body. Again, theories that these were possibly gases that they were taking in and it was altering them. So there's multiple theories about the altered state that these women went into, but always the priestess is seen with the laurel leaves and or typically chewing the laurel leaves. So that would be an example, I think, of associating these things with a substance, taking in a substance. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating how how many of these pieces intertwine <laughs> when you start really looking into the, the stories and the myths, how um and how often it repeats over history in different um different places and different locations. It's really fascinating. Well yeah, like let's look at we're at culture. Let's go up to the Yggdrasil, Yggdrasil, the world tree where you know the three fates lived at the base of the tree or had their sacred well at the base of the tree. And also there was the goat at the base of the tree who ate the leaves of the tree covered in mana, covered in this, the sacred dew. Um, and what did that goat produce after eating those sacred leaves? Not milk, <laughs> mead, which is honey wine. And that mead was of course the drink given to the fallen heroes, the exalted fallen heroes of Valhalla. So we have these connections with this life and death and life and death giving substance. Honey is pretty healing. And I, I you know, I, I often agree with folk when they say that mead was maybe the first alcoholic beverage. It fits because you'd have mead, which is honey and water, right? That's fermented, gathering in hollows of trees after rainstorms. So the fermentation would be happening naturally and people would have come into encounter that. There is a saying, not a saying, there's a theory that mead in ancient Greece used to always be um, brewed. And I wish I had a source to give you where I know this, but it was all word of mouth. But it was brewed with, um, oh God, what am I trying to say? With mushrooms, with mushrooms. So it was always um, mind altering, both of the honey and the mushrooms. And then at some point there was an ecological shift and the mushrooms stopped growing in, in that region that were the ones that were um, mind altering, we should say. And so they just went to straight mead. Now, again, that could be wrong. It's one of the many anecdotes I've heard out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's and we talked about actually fermentation like a, a couple episodes back because I think it's such an important piece of the story and it really um, fermentation is one of those things that really has come forward in a lot of traditions that we still do have and yeah. can really make that connection back to our ancient ancestors and back to um, some of these traditions that were otherwise lost to us and that you know it was I think we look at it with our you know, today eyes and say, oh, people were just drinking a lot of alcohol. <laughs> like it, that was all they were doing. They were just getting drunk all the time. Um, and really, you know, what is happening in the magic, uh, the science, whatever, you know, however you want to refer to it, um, of fermentation is really creating an incredibly nutritious, you know, food 
um, yeah. that in many cases was carrying people through the winter months Absolutely. when there was was no other option. So you can see how that connection between honey and the bees would have been so critical to people's survival. Sure. There were times when beer was safer to drink than water because the well would have been contaminated in the village right. and so people would drink beer. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, I'm in Sonoma County where everything is like, here's a beer that's 12 proof. You're like, Jesus Christ. Um, so things weren't as strong either. Things were watered down. Very much so. Yeah. 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 More like, you know, if you over ferment your kombucha kind of a yes. <laughs> situation, yes. much, much lower alcohol content. Yeah. yeah. It's so fascinating though. And yet another reason though, why that food would have been honey, you know, would have been considered so so important and and critical to people's survival. It was, and it was also medicine and still is. I mean, it's a number one go-to still to this day for burn therapy, um, wound healing, stomach issues, helps with sleep, helps with sore throats. You know, it's a, it's a very healing substance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you touched, you know, a little bit on the snake and that again has, um, has come up again and again, either in my, my dream states and visions and channelings that, you know, have, have come through and, um, particularly in, uh, my work with Amanita Muscaria over the past year, mm. the, the very first, uh, night that I worked with it and, and dreamt, I dreamt of the Ouroboros mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's, it's so, it's another, another really uh, interesting symbol as it has changed and shifted over thousands of years and many um, generations. But, uh, you know, what, what were some of the others? I know you mentioned the world tree and, and some of these other things, but, um, you know, what were some of the specific connections between snakes and bees? Hmm. That one is actually harder to answer specific connections. Yes, Yggdrasil, there was a beehive at the heart and um, a snake in the roots. Yes, that's true. But I haven't found, you know, what, what I practice and what I've been educated in is a very small folk tradition. And uh, it has some names that have gotten popularized, like the path of pollen, but it, it's not um, it's not written about, it's not widely known or talked about. So what I have is all stuff that came down down the line through oral teachings. And this is the path of the serpent and the bee, where I have found a confluence of those two coming together most readily is Delphi. And in this tradition, we do a tremendous amount of oracular work and seership um, from dream work to um, straight up Delphic style oracular work. Um, and it, you know, it's, a, it's a beautiful tradition. It's very, very housed in the body. We, we refer to the body as this divine tool of wisdom. But in terms of ancient cultures, where you see an intertwining of the serpent and the bee, I, I couldn't point you to a specific thing because it, I mean, so I just, I, I don't know. What I do know is that more, you see it more like side by side. So you'll see these, these motifs showing up again and again as symbols for specific things. So as symbols for death and rebirth that's a big one <clears throat> for the serpent and the bee as symbols for the uh, sacred feminine and feminine power and uh, female sexuality which has been very systemic systematically um i mean how, how many words can i use uh, oppressed repressed made evil um you know, sequestered, <laughs> veiled, on and on and on we go. Um, so of course you have this this symbol of, of you know, snake's been a symbol of the of the masculine and the phallic energy as well as the fem feminine. But we do see it again and again 
very connected to the sacred feminine and how what I would call eros moves through and the inherent sexual nature in all things, including the earth, including flowers, including our relationship to sunlight, you know, all of these things. Um, starting in very, very early on, this kind of power was heavily associated with goddesses and with the feminine and, and was very threatening and became evil. So, you know, we go, we go from, from it being a sacred symbol of power, you know, uh, we can look at, for instance, um, just so, so many, so many Mesopotamian Greek, you know, the Crete, the, the snake priestesses in ancient Crete, so, so many. And then we, of course, see like our, our Garden of Eden and the snake is the tempter, right? This, the, the tempting energy that comes and ruins it all for everybody. <laughs> um, but then you go to Celtic Britain and you have goddesses that have, or not Britain, sorry, Celtic, the Celtic world. So at all of the Celtic Isles, including even in um, Brittany, France, you have Greed or Brigid, the goddess and the saint, who is so strong in the hearts and minds of the Celtic imagination that she transcended and she bypassed the stamping out of all of the with you know the folk wisdom you know here's here's who's it saint patrick who comes to ireland and gets rid of all the snakes well the snakes were the the pagans right and um and here she is she survived and she becomes saint bridget and you know one of her primary symbols is the snake but we don't always think about that we don't always know that but it is it's one of her primary allies the snake emerges in the spring miraculously. It can shed its skin. It can renew itself. It is oroboric. And <clears throat> Bridget brings with her cloak with, that carries every single medicinal plant in its folds. She brings life and health back to the people in the spring. We're coming right up on her holiday in February. She, as a saint, is associated as well with bees. She actually sends her priestesses out as bees or the bees themselves out to defend her land when soldiers come knocking. So who's to say, like, it's these symbols of fertility. They're, there they are again and again and again. I think it's so deep in our primordial consciousness. There's a reason why Peoples from around the world talk about serpent energy moving through the rainbow serpent, the song lines, the Aboriginal song lines, the plume serpent, uh, the dragon lines and the ley lines. It's just on and on it goes. So I wish I could tell you all of the places where these two intersect, but you just keep finding them. They keep showing up. That's certainly been my experience. <laughs> like I say, just this whole process of just working on this season. It's like, oop, there we oh, we've just tripped across the bees again, or we've tripped across the serpent again. It just they really um they really are kind of hidden in plain sight in in yeah. that way. They, they haven't gone away. No, and I, I I hazard that you know, humans have been in relationship with the plants and the inherent energies of life and death on this earth for quite a while. And I think a lot of different cultures and people have been able to see more than meets the eye, see beyond the physical. And we know, we hear it again and again, that spiraling, wavy, wiggly, serpentine energy seems to be something that moves around. You know, we, we see it in even things like the serpent mound in the United States. This, this like, okay, people are seeing this, talking about this spiraling energy, these revolutions of life and death, this circuitous energy that moves through things and we have different names for it well here's an animal that embodies that yeah and i think it's interesting you um i made a note that you had mentioned in the the hive magic as well about the figure eight symbol 
that mm-hmm. the bees make in the hive or that it's a dance mm-hmm. um, and the connection even to that and the Ouroboros and sure. infinity. Yes, it's very much a thing. Uh, so yeah, if you think of a figure eight on its side um, and then overlay that with a snake swallowing in its tail, then you get one of the symbols of the Ouroboros. So it's not just a perfect circle. The honeybee itself both flies in these figure eights near the hive, especially when the, the young bees are orienting themselves uh, or when a bee is returning home. Uh, but they also physically make that movement in a very complex form of communication deep in the hive when they return from a foraging journey and they're, they're telling other sisters where to find food. So it's a language. And the a bee shamanism tradition that I'm part of the figure eight becomes the primary symbol that we work with. And I love it because it's infinity, but it also is a symbol that helps us work with polarity and duality and the place in the middle where both exist at the same time, which can be tremendously helpful in the current modern climate where we have a lot of polarized thinking this or that, yes or no, Republican or Democrat, you know, all of the things we can, we can work with this. Well, what is it to experience one loop that is life and the other loop that is death, one loop that is masculine and the other loop that is female and feminine, one loop that is day and the other that is night. And, and how can we learn from these two moving energies to, to help us find that place between where both are happening at the same time? the liminal and the liminal is loved in this work because the liminal moments those moments between waking and sleeping those moments between one part of your life and another those moments of transition it's those moments where reality is most mutable and when we open to the idea of the fixed places in our reality becoming softer becoming more mutable we can open to the idea of infinite possibility and miraculous change. And suddenly, instead of feeling absolutely overwhelmed by the prospects of what lies ahead for the earth, for humanity, for climate change, et cetera, et cetera, it's like, well, well maybe there's a way we haven't thought of yet. Maybe there's, there's a, a different path that can open up in our lives that can be in congruence with life force and with the earth. I love that symbol. Really, that's what it means to me. I love that too. And even in, in thinking of what you just said, maybe maybe instead of being in this desperate place, worrying about the earth, we're really just in that liminal space in this moment of time. Like the, yeah, the answer hasn't come to us yet. We're not quite there yet. We don't know. Mm-hmm. But we're still holding space for that to happen here in this in-between space. Yeah, and then- Earth time moves very slow compared to human time. So we, we have to be um, we have to be part of it. And you know, when we when we spend a lot of time, honestly, it doesn't matter if you're studying the symbolism and the connection to bees or to a bear or to the redwood tree, if you keep going, you're gonna keep coming back to similar overlapping truths. And one of those is that we are it. So we are the earth, we are the bees, we are the trees, we are interconnected, we're interrelated. We are a form of consciousness that has evolved out of the earth. And we get to look at it, which is us, at ourselves, and be in continual learning with how to, how to be. And I think it's really powerful to remember that we're not, we're not separate from that. We are part of the creative life force that exists. And we've quite clearly, just based on the discussion and what we've covered just in this time, you know, have evolved together with the bees and have held them in, in high regard and, and worked together with them for eons. Again, you're looking at two creatures, the serpent and the bee, who have been around for a lot longer than us. And 
I highly recommend picking up either Thor Hansen's book, um, which is called Buzz, or looking up the research around honeybees and nutrition done by Alyssa uh, Crittenden. I hope I'm saying her name right off the top of my head. But what, what's been found, he, he discusses it in his book, is that we, we have actually evolved in part due to honeybees. That there was a point where taking in honey, when we were able to start to access nest sites with the use of fire, when fire was invented or not invented, discovered, not invented, <laughs> when fire was discovered and we started utilizing smoke and fire, we had more access, we had more access to tool, we started creating more tools, we started having more access through fire to nest sites to, of course, smoking bees because that calms them, moves them out of the way, more access to the nutrition that exists in pollen, honey, and the actual like bee larva. And that this is one of the contributing factors to the evolutionary leap that literally made uh, made our brains bigger, made us what we are today, homo sapiens. So that's one of my very, very favorite things to think about, because what it means is that somewhere hidden in our primordial DNA is a really big thank you. <laughs> Like a really big, like, I need you. Thank you. You helped make me. You are in a way part of my ancestry. You're an elder to me, bees, and everything you offered. Yes, there were other factors like being able to cook organ meats. That was part of it. But, but wow, wow. What if, what if bees literally helped us develop our brains and therefore our consciousness to the state it is, you know? Wow. Who are they then? How can we relate to them? Yeah. So it's right there in biology. It's not just in mythology. That's really remarkable and, and beautiful. And I just, you know, I think about, you know, also just that, again, that idea of them being in this liminal space or as um, either an escort between the worlds or a prophetess about other times or or guidance in that way uh, maybe that's the best word for them as guides uh, yeah. for us in in many different ways and and it's been interesting because I've been and I don't know that I have a question in here but just in thinking out loud you know have been kind of contemplating some of these you know Mormon traditions around a real you know obsession for lack of a better word with um the the dead, the dead ancestors and, um, you know, bringing them back into the fold or making the connection or finding your ancestors. And, and, you know, I haven't, I haven't totally been able to kind of place that as to like, what is, what is this real need to, um, find and bring, you know, all of, all of the dead together um, and, but I think it's interesting when we kind of add that B symbology of the religion to it, you know, maybe there is some piece about, um, you know, not wanting to lose touch with, uh, those who have gone before us and the B being this, uh, this guide, uh, mm -hmm. in the liminal space between the living and the dead. I'm not sure. But. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Bees are, are also considered psychopomps. So in some cultures. So a psychopomp is like a death midwife. Um, the, the energy of one who carries the soul that's passed from physical incarnation to the next life or into the next world or into paradise. So these were this Germanic culture, Greek culture, Celtic culture. And they also helped bring souls in, into incarnation. So it's said in, in Greek myth that I was a Greek or Celtic, it might have been both, that an incoming soul was a bee, um, a particularly kind of soul, pure soul was a bee. But yeah, we, we don't have a lot of um, modern rituals and relationships with ancestors and the dead. I think when we find it in any religion, you know, every, every single religion, every single 
animistic tradition has a tremendous amount of thought and space and ritual and time given to honoring that which has gone before. I think it's a really key element and can be really, really supportive in our, in our, in almost like the, the feeling of quite literal support of being a human now, feeling held and supported by your ancestors and then being a living ancestor carrying, carrying life onward. Yeah, it's so beautiful. The reason why honey was given to so many, I mean, it's in like every burial thing everywhere. And what did they, what did they leave in the grave? Honey. (laughs) So yeah, who did the afterlife? Yeah, yeah. Well, just to kind of touch on that and, and wrap up, you know, this beautiful conversation about the bees, um, you know, what are, do you have any suggestions for those who are looking to kind of just begin making that reconnection to the lineage of the bees wherever in their uh, culture or wherever in their tradition it may connect back? Sure. Yeah. Well, okay. So first and foremost, a book. Um, Hilda Ransom, did. Uh, what is the name of her book? I think it's like the History and Folklore of Bees, something like that. Hilda Ransom. She goes over a lot of different cultures and has a lot of it's like it's a dense book with a lot of gathered references about you know britain france scandinavia it's mostly dealing with apis mellifera which is the european honeybee so we don't hear that much about it um about bees in other cultures that are for, for instance uh the asian honeybees there are eight, eight other species that live there or the stingless bees in, in South America. So there's other cultures that work with the bee. Um, fiction, I think, is a great place to start. I know that sounds kind of funny, but there are some beautiful fictions out there that that encounter bees, um, the secret life of bees. Uh, there's a, something, oh God, there's a beautiful one that takes place in Mexico that I think it has murmur in the title. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, so that would be one place. Um, literally as as the spring evolves starting to just watch where are the bees and what are they eating it's it's a it's that's the most profound way just start to notice where do you see bees where do you hear them when you walk past a flowering plum tree in february stop can you hear can you hear the bees do you have a linden tree in your backyard or what else do they love rosemary just notice watching them being curious about the actual bees starts to unlock other things that might feel and act more mystical in your life rather than just going to books. Um, So that would be one way. I also really do love working with products from the hive intentionally, honey, pollen, propolis. I have some amazing pollen. I recommend it from, um, from Pixie Mead. They are based up in Washington and have pollen that's unlike any other pollen I've ever tasted, just made with such diverse flora. So these are all ways to connect through ingesting the food of the bees, watching the bees. And yeah, t- uh, check out some some old myth, old stories. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your knowledge and uh if you can just let people know where they can find you and connect with you what what some of your offerings are and um where in the world you are yeah i'm in a couple of places i'm locally based in sonoma county california and you can find me at honeybeewild.com honeybeewild.com com and then my instagram is my most prevalent social media platform so that's beekeeping in skirts beekeeping in skirts so those are some of the places you'll find me i have some ongoing um on-demand dream classes that you can do connected to the bee through the shift network you can find me there just type my name in for faculty if you're interested in actually working with bees and dreams which we didn't get into but they're a great great ally working with intentional dreaming 
And uh, if you're interested in basically, you know, just introductory to natural beekeeping, there are also some on-demand pre-recorded courses on my site. So there you go. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. And yeah, looking forward to seeing how this continues to unfold uh, on, on the journey that I'm on. But I appreciate you you sharing here today. Thanks for joining us. You are so welcome. It, it's it's always a path of following breadcrumbs and they don't always all make sense. I'm I'm just wishing you the most wonderful revelatory experience because it's those ahas and connecting the dots time and time again that that give you that sense of yeah there's substance here and it's fun so I I encourage that I'm so excited that this is a project you're doing I I send you all off those of you who are listening with with love for the bees if you do anything at all for them plant for them they need flowers Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.